Well, I promise that this will be the last time we talk about the church budget just moments before the sermon for a while. But you know that throughout the month of December, we uh, talk about our local church commitments a lot and for good reason. And um, I just wanted to give you a report about where we have landed in the process of our investment in the ministry of this local congregation. In fact, I'd like to take us back through a bit of history, if I might, of where we've been over the last few weeks. Uh, on December 10, you can see in the green, that is what had come in, and the red was what uh, still needed to arrive. By December 17, we had reached uh, that particular mark. By the 24th, we had risen about there. Uh, the next slide, I think, is the 29th. And then um, in the last couple of days, this. Um, we did not reach our goal. We knocked the roof off the top of the goal by some $25,000. Wow. Now, I told you last week that I was working on a touchdown dance for this day, and I've been practicing. And Nicole said I could do it. <laughs> but there was a sleeping bag in a basement in the church that I would be enjoying if, in fact, I performed it. <laughs> so I'm sorry to disappoint all of you, but in my heart, I'm doing a dance. Um, this is powerful for a couple of reasons. One, the extensive amount of reserves this allows us to put back into the church is needed, friends. This, this helps us be healthy and responsible moving forward. Great. But beyond that, I want you to know that um, our treasurers tell us that this was not the product of a donor or two that skewed the number in such a happy fashion. Not at all. But rather the widespread contribution of people in this congregation demonstrating a deep heart commitment for what Jesus is up to here. And so on behalf of the pastoral staff and, and the whole leadership of the church, I want to say thank you for the incredible commitment that you continue to make this, to this congregation. And I want to say a word uh, just briefly, particularly to those of my generation, those in their early 30s <laughs> or mid-40s. I want to challenge you, I want to challenge us to continue to faithfully power this congregation through our investments, not merely relying on a previous generation's faithfulness, for it is time for us to take the baton and to lead this congregation, including in our financial stewardship. So if you're around 45 and down, that message is for you. The other project, great progress as well. Um, you can see that we are well on our way towards achieving the resources we need to continue with our broadcast ministry. We have a little bit uh, of work to do there, but I think maybe even this January, it's possible that miraculously this congregation will help us take care of this critical need that we have in the congregation. Okay, on to the sermon. We continue our series entitled The Story 
school year long, looking at our shared human epic. Here's the review of where we've been, where we're headed. You see in the gold lettering today the subject, tribes. And we begin each week, importantly, with an interview with a particular human being as it brings greater richness to our understanding of the shared human story. And so I'd like to invite David Prest back up, for we have enjoyed having among our guests the uh, presidents of various local conferences that are a part of this church family. And uh, David and I have a little history together from the great state of North Carolina, and so we have a special bond of not only enjoying the majesty of that part of the world, but having the good sense to move to this part. And, Amen. Um, <clears throat> are you ready for the question, sir? I am ready. <laughs> <clears throat> what sound or noise do you love? My wife's voice. Now, I want to say that's the sound, not the noise. Her voice is sound, not noise. <laughs> Good distinction. Want to make that distinction. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? I would have to go with fingernails on a chalkboard. Mm. Come from that generation when there were chalkboards yes. and, yeah. When friends visit from out of town, where do you take them to eat and why? P.F. Chang's. Three reasons. Um, food to die for, pleasing ambiance, and wonderful service. Excellent. Do you work for P.F. Chang's? <laughs> <laughs> if you inherited a large sum of money, what would be your first purchase? You know, that would need to be a house. Um, my wife and I live in Coldwell, Idaho. My office is in Boise. She teaches in Eagle. So <clears throat> I would have to say a house in Eagle, Idaho, oh. put us closer to where my wife teaches and closer to my office. Good. What quality do you appreciate most in people? Mm. A forgiving spirit. Gracious, forgiving attitude and spirit. All of us are humans, make mistakes. I'm chief among them. And when I sense that gracious, forgiving spirit, I value that most. Hmm. If you were a person in Scripture, who would you be? You know, that was an interesting question, Alex. I'd never really read Scripture with that in mind, but uh, after spending some time on that, I think I'd have to say Daniel. Um, I'm, I'm passionate about standing for that which is right, that which hmm. is just, that which is truth, and of course, anytime you know you're in leadership, you have to make decisions as well. Some are popular and some aren't, and you have to take a stand. And so I would, I would say Daniel. So who is your least favorite person in Scripture then, other than the devil? Well, uh, following Daniel's theme, I, uh, I would have to say those men that worked for King Darius in, that's recorded in Daniel chapter 6 that uh, led King Darius to the, to the law that required Daniel to be in, in the lion's den for a, a night. Um, they're my least favorite because I, I, really, I really do not like manipulation, do not like conniving or sneakiness. Um, those men were, and that's why they're my least favorite. Uh, I highly value transparency. Hmm. What energizes you? Mm. 
learning something new. Um, I think I could be a lifelong student. But also, in addition to that, and these are right there that, at tie at number one, uh, equipping and empowering people for ministry and service. Good. Love that. What makes you cry? <clears throat> I think personal stories of, of joy as well as sadness. Finally, uh, David, what do you hope to hear God say to you when you arrive in heaven? You know, I just, uh, by His grace, want to want to be there, but to hear Him say something would be even kind of the frosting on the cake. Hmm. And um, uh, welcome home, David. Hmm. Um, I've been with you every step of the hmm. way, through the highs as well as the lows. Hmm. And um, I welcome you home. Thank you, Elder Prest. Let's thank him for joining us today. Thank you so much. Paris grabbed the world's attention this week. An act of unspeakable violence, the destruction of so many human lives, terror. The story really first of a group of individuals who decided that it was their God, their viewpoint, their understanding of the world that gave them permission to kill other human beings. But on the other side, a group of people who certainly had the legal right, but thought it was in good wisdom to write and to speak and to draw pictures of a despicable nature in an attempt to irritate and denigrate others. You remember the final sermon that I gave of the winter quarter before the students left for vacation. I said, I think that as a world, we are in a fighting mood. We are grumpy. We are ready as a society to come to blows and we're prepared to say whatever we want to say, do whatever we want to do in order to argue for our viewpoint. And the same is true, I believe, sadly, in the Christian world and also at times in the Adventist Christian world. We think we have the right, perhaps not to physically kill someone, but certainly to do, to draw, to write, to blog, to say whatever it is that we want to say in defense of our understanding of God and of life. We are in a fighting mood. We are in a broken, shattered time. So what should those of us who claim to follow Jesus do? How can we change this reality? What impact might we make? As you might imagine, I believe the answer is found in these scriptures. But I don't mean one particular verse or point of attack, but rather the whole of what they say. And so for a few minutes this morning, I would like to consider two families. Two families that I believe are the major theme of these scriptures and see what we might learn 
about changing the reality of our world. The first family dominates the beginning three quarters of the Bible, the story of the children of Israel, the children of Jacob. This is their story. We begin with the characters, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. I'll be reading from Genesis 29, and today, lean in, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture. Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days of him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came and the veil was removed, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. And Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, this is the meaning of Reuben, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved. He gave me this one too. And this is the meaning of Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, this time, maybe this time, I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. 
the story of an unloved wife who through the bearing of son after son seeks the love and affection and the approval of her husband. But it is unsuccessful. Meanwhile, the supposedly loved wife, Rachel, is childless. And she is not happy about it, and so enter now Bilhah, her maid servant. Rachel says to Jacob, this shall be your wife, and she will be on my team. We will have children on our side of the ledger. Rachel's servant, Billah, has Dan, which means God has vindicated me. Rachel's servant, Billah, then has Naphtali. I have a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. Well, Leah realizes that things are not going as she would like. Enter Zilpah, her maidservant, who becomes the fourth wife of Jacob. Leah's servant Zilpah has Gad. What good fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah has Asher. How happy I am. The women will now call me happy. And then Leah becomes pregnant herself and has Issachar. God has rewarded me. Leah has Zebulun. This time my husband will treat me with honor. Three women with children. But Rachel remains. Finally, we learn that Rachel has Joseph. The meaning of the name, God has taken away my disgrace. Then Rachel, and she will die in childbearing. Rachel has been Ani, renamed Benjamin, son of my trouble, redefined son of my right hand. And there you have it. Twelve boys and four wives miserable for lack of affection from their husband and distrust and hate of one another. But I've forgotten something, haven't I? The footnote. Dinah, the sister. So inconsequential is her birth it does not play in this great struggle. And all we really know of Dinah, her story, that she is sexually abused by Shechem, her father and her brothers, too late to protect her. That's all she is. A footnote. So what is Jacob's relationship like then with his children? Genesis 37, now Israel, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. The very thing he does with the wives, he now passes on to the children. I'm going to love some of them, some of them more than others. I am going to navigate the way that I express affection. There will be a hierarchy. And please note this, my friends. Whenever there is a hierarchy, even those at the top, even those who wear the colorful robe are suspicious. For they know that they might one day get kicked down the ladder 
and so they are cautious. The result of all of this, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And you remember that some wish to kill him. They sell him into slavery. And the story plays out of divided tribes, a shattered kingdom, a family broken apart. So here's the summary. Jacob, a father, does not love all of his wives equally, withholds affection for them, and the effect of this insecurity is constant fighting and bitterness and war between the four women. This also plays out with the 12 boys as they argue and fight the product of not having the consistent penetrating love of their father equally experienced across the board. And then, oh yeah, the footnote, Dinah. This is the first family story. First three quarters of these scriptures. Family number two, which dominates the final quarter of the Bible, we discover Jesus, who assembles 12 boys. The first century observer would not have missed the point. Jesus is doing something very intentional and specific here. He does not bring together six or nine or ten or fifteen. Twelve boys assemble. And so the alert observer of Scripture understands that Jesus is up to something with great intentionality. He is reconfiguring, bringing back together a new version of family in reaction to the family of Jacob. We read about this new family. Mark chapter 3, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to those to, the, to him, those he wanted. He wanted them, all of them. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. Relational terminology. He wants them. He wants them to be with him, everybody, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority. He has confidence in them. 12 boys. I want to be with you. I want to have a relationship with you. I have confidence in you. Everyone. So what is the nature then of these boys, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas? What is it that Jesus has to say to them about how this new family will function? Later in Mark 3, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting out around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
in this definitive experience, Jesus is saying to all those that want to know about his new family, there will not be favorites. There are not some who are more on the inside while others are on the outside. Some are not closer to me and others further away. It needs to be clear that the family I'm assembling, everybody has the equal, consistent, penetrating, affectionate love that I have for them. No favorites. That's how this new family is going to work. And so what is the impact then about how all the family members get along with one another? Notice Mark chapter 9. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But the boys kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. Jesus says, The effect of my absolutely equal and deep affection for you, all of you, no favorites, is that it should create naturally a loving affection for one another where you need not fight and prove who really is number one, number two, or number three. A whole new reality. The brothers at oneness together. But we're missing something, aren't we? The footnote. Dinah. If you have read the gospel story at least once, you know. The overwhelming move that Jesus makes, not only for the brothers, but for the sisters. At least five powerful examples. These coming from the testimony of the Gospel of John. First, the Samaritan woman that many scholars see as the very first Christian missionary. Significant. John 8 a woman caught in adultery, and Jesus says to the men, don't you dare throw a stone. John chapter 11 explicitly says, and Jesus loved Martha. John 12, Mary the sister, an inappropriate anointing of Jesus' feet. But Jesus says, back off, this story, what she has done, will be told in the family stories throughout eternity. And finally, and perhaps most significant, Mary Magdalene and the other women. The scriptures tell us not only are they eyewitnesses to the placement of the body of Jesus in the tomb, but they are the first and chief eyewitnesses to an empty tomb, the most significant event in Christian history, changing the world, the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sisters. This new family, not only a place where all of the boys feel the perfect and even love of God, but now the sisters, no longer a footnote, but included equally in the power of the gospel story, this new family Jesus is bringing together. And Jesus will say, 
by the power of his spirit that his new family over time will grow and develop in living out these new family values and it will transform the world. In fact, we catch a glimpse of this, of what will be one day in the future, Revelation. Chapter number 7, we read, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. Sealed, that is, those firmly in the grip of God's hands. Those who fully understand the completeness of his love and affection for them. Those who are sealed. Notice, 144,000 from all the tribes, the family of Israel. Family language. The reader of Revelation should not miss it. This is about Jacob's family. This is about Jesus' now reconstituted family that he's putting together. Notice verse 5, the boys. All of them. Each equally sealed. Each with 12,000 members. The brotherhood at unity with one another. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, and no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This great expression of family and brotherhood at a whole new level. But we're missing something, aren't we? What about the sisters? Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him the family, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Picking up in verse 3, And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the family, who had been redeemed from the earth. And then this curious phrase, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's strange, isn't it? <laughs> I've spent hours taking a look at all the various interpretations of this bizarre verse. Now some, uh, believe it or not, take it literally, that in heaven there will only be men who've had no relationships to women. The problem, of course, is that what do you do with the raft of passages in the Scripture that celebrate marriage, for example? Um, it's easy to dismiss a literal reading in that sense. And then, of course, there's many important symbolic or metaphorical understandings of this particular passage. Some, I have to tell you, I find quite convincing, and I probably even buy into them. They look good. But even those commentators are careful not to overstate with certainty the precision of what this complex verse means. So I think there's probably symbolic value here, absolutely. But whatever this verse is saying, this, in the context of family, that's the subject, the family of Jacob, the family of Jesus made new, in the context of this new family, the relationship between the genders is as it should be. 
everything is right for the brothers and for the sisters. Powerful. This new vision. Jesus, the 12 brothers at unity with the power of his love. And now, at last, the sisterhood. Joining in full equality the vision of Jesus by the power of his spirit together. So there you have it. These scriptures to families. That's the sweep of this story. Two families. But not really, actually. To be more precise, it's the story of two fathers, isn't it? Jacob, who because of his inability to love well and consistently, creates division among his wives, brokenness in the brothers, and the footnoting of the girl. And what does the family do because it does not have the confidence of God's love across the board equally? They fight and they kill and family becomes hell. But then there's Jesus who assembles the brotherhood anew. Perfect love, consistent affection for both the boys and the girls, a totally different father. But this really isn't about two fathers, actually. It's about two heavenly fathers. Two visions of who God is. A father who loves some people more than others, who has a hierarchy and who is capricious and uneven in the way he has affection for his human family. Which leads to all kinds of wars between us. Or, the vision that Jesus has, he says, I have come to show you the Heavenly Father. A Father who loves the world with faithfulness, with intensity, with consistency. And think of the difference that produces. My brothers and sisters, when we speak of the importance of the love of God, this is not part of the gospel, the touchy-feely stuff that we throw in every now and then to make us feel better about serious theology. The unwavering love of the Father in heaven is the absolute core and the most significant piece of what it means to be a Christian and to take Jesus seriously. It is life-transforming to know that our Father in heaven loves us without wavering and loves all of us equally. And what that ought to do in our human community is transform us not into a warlike people but into lovers of one another. This is precisely what Jesus has in mind. So I've been collecting some pictures of bibs for babies. 
I want to share a few of these with you. My daddy loves me more than football. My daddy loves me more than golf. My daddy loves me more than hockey. Daddy loves me more than soccer. My daddy loves me more than his tractor. My daddy loves me. Paris grabbed the world's attention this week. A story of unspeakable violence. The violence of words and of weapons. What would it be like for us, those who claim to follow Jesus? To live with a vision of the love of our Heavenly Father. And to invest our lives in knowing that love. And in sharing His love. In all of its consistency and depth. With the entirety of our human family. I wonder.